I became interested in Fort Norfolk and got to know Steve uh, Forrest and Rob Fryer and started to talk to them about reenacting. And as I went through there, some things became very apparent to me, namely that this Fort Norfolk is the last of the 1794 coastal fortifications commissioned by George Washington. Another Mason, by the way, folks. Um, so I took an interest in that and I started to do some research on it. And what struck me immediately was the interplay between the members of Norfolk Lodge Number 1 and Fort Norfolk. And from that point of view, I started to take a look at what I already knew about the War of 1812 and the significance of Fort Norfolk. And what I came away with was an understanding that this is a fortification that is not just of national significance, as I hope to show you tonight, but also of international significance. And I'll tell you why. That's because the Battle of Quinney Island is more than just a little skirmish on the after, in the afternoon of, of June 22nd, 1813. It's a lot more than that. Let me show you why. What we're going to do tonight is to debunk a commonly held theory about the War of 1812 that it was a series of battles and skirmishes that were fought along the Canadian frontier and out in the Atlantic Ocean. Not so. And in particular, people here in Norfolk will know this, that there was a lot of things that went on here. We may have been blockaded from the Atlantic Ocean, but there were things that happened that were of great importance. You'll notice that there's nothing on this usual map of the War of 1812 about Crane Island, because that's a popular misconception too, that it was not a significant battle. It was. There was much more to it than indeed the burning of Washington or the uh, Battle of Fort McHenry, as important as they were. What happened at Craney Island was more important than those two because it started something that turned the tide of the War of 1812 in favor of the United States. In preparation for the war, there were many, many Americans who knew that we were vulnerable here. And three of the, the most important ones, as far as we're concerned, were all Masons. That is, General Thomas Matthews, after whom Matthews County is named, born in St. Kitts in the Caribbean, came to Norfolk, practiced law here, was a captain, then a major in um, the artillery regiment of um, John Marshall. He served under Marshall, eventually became a colonel with his own regiment, and then was promoted to be the Brigadier General commanding the Norfolk Military District. This man was responsible for uh, making Fort Norfolk into what it was at the time of the War of 1812. Unfortunately, he died in February of 1812 and did not have the opportunity to see the fruits of his labor, but he was a great man, a past master of Norfolk Lodge No. 1, and indeed in 1791, 92, and 93, a Grand Master of Masons in Virginia, the Grand Lodge in Richmond. Very important man. Also, we have Major Thomas Newton. Now, Thomas Newton is a very, as you all know, I mean, I realize I'm preaching to the choir about this, tough man to, tra to track down. We have three Thomas Newtons. Thomas Newton Sr., not hard to figure out, he's in the earlier in the 18th century. Thomas Newton Jr. and Thomas Newton III, often referred to also as Thomas Newton Jr. The person we're most interested in is Major Thomas Newton, who was a Revolutionary War officer and a very close friend of Thomas Matthews. The two of them also were very good friends with James Monroe. James Monroe was also a Mason and a fellow officer in the Revolutionary War. They all three knew each other very well. They ended up on opposite sides of many different issues. For example, uh, Matthews was a Federalist. Monroe, obviously not. He was a protege, as you know, of Jefferson. But 
the future president, James Monroe, was very interested in this area. This shows up when he's governor of Virginia, 1799, 1800, 1801, with the transfer of the Gosport shipyards from the state of Virginia to the federal government. Who looks after this? James Monroe, Thomas Newton, Thomas Matthews. Thomas Matthews convinces his friends in the House of Delegates in Richmond, because he's been speaker there for so long, that this is a good thing to do. Major Thomas Newton, Jr. is a great friend of many people in the federal government. He talks to them, and James Monroe, as the governor, signs the deed that transfers the property to the federal government to make the Gosport Navy Yards. This has been known to be a good site for a shipbuilding since at least 1767. The Brits had built, the, built there. Wonderful place to be. Obviously very important to this area. Those three men were responsible for putting the deal through that made it happen. So Monroe has an, an active interest in this area militarily from as early as 1801. Chesapeake Leopard Affair. Why is this important? Well, as soon as this happens, Thomas Matthews, Thomas Newton get together and form a committee of safety. Why? They think it's 1776 all over again and Norfolk should prepare for bombardment. This obviously does not happen, but nevertheless, they make the preparations for this and they sound the alarm and say, look, we've got to be doing some stuff here in order to look after Fort Norfolk and bring it back to its proper state of preparedness. Who is the, at this point the minister to England and who is carrying the torch as far as trying to find a diplomatic solution to this? James Monroe. Monroe finds out from his, his experience about the Chesapeake Leopard Affair that there is no diplomatic solution with the British. This is simply not going to happen. So once again, he comes back to Virginia. He is governor in 1811. And what does he do? He works with Thomas Matthews to fortify Fort Norfolk and other fortifications in the area to prepare for work, which he knows is coming. What we see here, folks, in Fort Norfolk in 1811 is the commencement of the Monroe Doctrine. James Monroe is aware of the fact that if we want to keep the British out, we have to begin to prepare for this and the fortifications have to be looked after. So even though it will be another, oh, 12, 12 years before the Monroe Doctrine comes out in 1823, it starts here in 1811. Now, the thought that there is nothing to this except what goes on uh, along the coast with the ships going up and down and blockading us and on the Canadian frontier, no, sir. This is Solomon Jacobs. Solomon Jacobs, in 1812, is Grand Master of Masons in Virginia, a lawyer in, um, a merchant in Richmond. He takes uh, Mason's Hall, turns it into a hospital for wounded soldiers. Now, why do we need a hospital for wounded soldiers in Richmond, Virginia, if the only activity is on the Canadian frontier and out on the ocean. He is succeeded in 1813 by Robert Bruff, who is from, you guessed it, Norfolk Lodge No. 1. 1813, 14, and 15, the Grand Master of Masons is once again from Norfolk. He continues the practice of using Masons Hall as a hospital, not just for Masonic soldiers that are wounded, but any soldier that is wounded. They bring them back to Richmond. Why? Because, because without a doubt, Virginia is the heart and soul of the War of 1812. This, is, this building is still standing, by the way, folks. It is probably the longest and most continuously used Masonic building in certainly North America, if not the Western Hemisphere, in Richmond. Now, once again, if we're not worried about this, why is Alexander McRae not only a great politician, all the way to being on the Governor's Council, he's a member of the Committee of Vigilance for the City of Richmond at the War of 1812. 
if the battle is just going on uh, up along the waterfront and on the Canadian lakes, why do we have this happening? Quite simply because they're afraid the British are going to sail up the James and attack Richmond. And they consider this to be a legitimate fear. Once again, another Mason. Virginia in 1812. What do we got? Well, we have the U.S. 20th Infantry Regiment at Fort Norfolk and a large contingent of Virginia militia. Specifically, the 4th Company, 4th Regiment, rather, is right there. Take a look at those numbers. As soon as war is declared, Virginia immediately sends out 1,500 men into the Northwest to fight in the War of 1812. Late in 1812, you have the formation of the Petersburg Volunteers. Folks, these men marched from Petersburg, Virginia, to Fort Meigs, Ohio. They stopped along the way. They stopped in Washington. It was there that Madison said that they, their cockades were so beautiful, and from then, that point forward, Petersburg was known as the Cockade City. That's where it comes from. They are led by, well, by the way, think about this fact. By 1814, 60,000 Virginians are under arms in the War of 1812. The drill-down number for Afghanistan, total number, is 68,000. So imagine, it would be as if the whole force in Afghanistan came from Virginia. That's the level we're talking about. That's why Virginia is so important in the War of 1812. That's why this is not merely something in the Great Lakes and Atlantic Ocean. It's right here, folks. The Petersburg Volunteers are still very, very highly regarded in their home city. Of course they are. They're also very highly regarded in Ohio. The person that led them was another McRae, Robert McRae, and probably a younger brother of Alexander McRae's and another Mason and a member of Bladford Lodge No. 3 in Petersburg. He led them all the way from Petersburg to Fort Meigs, Ohio, on foot. The winters in Ohio were not like the winters here at all. And actually, I'm from an area not too far away from Ohio, and I can attest to you that they're not like anything here. And people frequently say to me when it gets cold, you must be used to that. I have a stock answer to that, ladies and gentlemen, and that is, used to something doesn't mean you like it. <laughs> now, this is all leading up to something I think is very important in terms of the course of the War of 1812. We have what I call the 1813 dominoes, and they are as follows. Craney Island, June 22, 1813. The Battle of Lake Erie, September 10, 1813. And the Battle of the Thames, October 15, 1813. And I'm going to go through and tell you why these are important, why these change the course, not just of the War of 1812, indeed, folks, but American history is changed with these three dominoes. As I said to you, General um, Thomas Matthews died in February of 1812. He was succeeded by Robert Barrow Taylor, a member of Norfolk Lodge No. 1. He was not a past master, but he was a member. That's all right. Um, he did serve, and he was a brilliant commander, no question about it, but he used the fortifications that General Matthews had built up with President Monroe, and he uh, set up a brilliant system of semaphore between that, Fort Nelson, and Craney Island so that they could tell when people were approaching and concentrate the forces where they were needed the most. There you can see, there's our setup. Fort Norfolk, Fort Nelson is across the way there, and of course Craney Island. 
using the semaphore codes on flagpoles, I understand, running the colors up. They were able to talk about what was going on to each other, communicate, and know when the British were approaching. Of course, Craney Island was the most forward position in that regard. It was very, very important that they know what was going on. Now, why are we doing this? Why do we have this invasion targets? Why do they want us? Why do they want Portsmouth, Norfolk, and Craney Island? Why are these things important? Because, quite simply, the thought is if we invade Virginia, remember those numbers I was talking about, all those men under arms will force the United States to look back upon itself. All those people coming out of Virginia going into the Northwest will now have to stay home. They won't be able to go up into the Great Lakes region. They'll have to stay exactly where they are and fight there. So we will forestall the invasion that they know is coming. There's already been three attempts that have failed. They know the fourth one is going to succeed. So let's invade Virginia. Let's force the attention back on the Mid-Atlantic and take it off the Great Lakes. How better to do that than to go in? They already control the area in the, around the Atlantic. They're already up here. They can go into the Chesapeake anytime they want. So they say, let's do that. Let's take Norfolk. Let's take Portsmouth. These things are important military targets in and of themselves. The Gosport Shipyard, we just talked about, a very important military target in and of itself. Also where, if memory serves, the USS Constitution is holed up there because of the British fleet. Again, a very worthy prize to be taken home or converted into a British ship. Wouldn't that be marvelous? But the biggest thing they're looking for here is an end to the opportunity for an invasion of Canada. There we are. There's Fort Norfolk. That is what's going to stop this from happening. Craney Island, again, you can see in Fort Nelson is across the river from Fort Norfolk. That's all that stands between the invasion of Virginia and not, this, these things not happening and the defeat of that invasion. There is no Fort Norfolk, uh, uh, Fort Monroe at this point, remember, please. They can sail right past Old Point Comfort, no trouble at all, right into the, uh, the Chesapeake and go down Fort Norfolk, Craney Island, Fort Nelson, the only thing stopping them from proceeding. The British forces that were there, the 102nd Regiment. Bear in mind the Napoleonic Wars are going on in Europe. The British need every available soldier they've got. This regiment is from Australia. They are known as the Rum Running Regiment. Not exactly outstanding soldiers. Thank goodness. The second group, the Independent Company of Foreigners. These are French prisoners of war who, in return for their liberty, have agreed to fight for the British. So, of course, they're not going to keep them in Europe. They send them over here. There are two of these independent companies who will prove to be quite difficult and the source of some problems for Hampton later on. But once again, not the most reliable soldiers in the world. So the first two groups that we have to deal with are not that hard at all. Third group is the Royal Marines. Like our Marines, some of the most uh, intense fighting men in the world. This is the group to beware of. Fortunately, they are the smallest number of the three of them. That's what it looks like. That's what we're up against. What do we have here? The U.S. 20th, the Virginia Militia, and, of course, the United States Navy, which General Taylor, when the semaphore goes up that the British are coming, quite uh, smartly goes out, goes to the USS Constitution, says, bring your artillery, let's go, let's go to Craney Island and stop the Brits right now. This is what awaits the British as they disembark and attempt to go across the marshy area of Craney Island. They are mowed down by grape shot. The battle doesn't last very long. 
they, uh, their ships are sunk. Um, they, are, they make no headway whatsoever. It is a complete and total defeat for the British, the likes of which they've probably never seen before. Domino number one falls on June 22, 1813. Domino number two, the Battle of Lake Erie. Very interesting story here. There's the famous flag of Oliver Hazard Perry, don't give up the ship. Commodore Perry himself thought to be a Mason from New Hampshire. A brilliant commander, no question about it. But the real story here is not Oliver Hazard Perry. It is a Pennsylvania Mason by the name of Daniel Dobbins. The American fleet is being built at Put-In Bay, Sandusky, Ohio. Why is this important? Because there is a sandbar there. And the British look at this and laugh their full heads off. What kind of an idiot builds his fleet behind a sandbar? A very smart man. Now, Daniel Dobbins was captured by the British. He was being held at Fort Malden, right across from Monroe, Michigan. A brother Mason, British officer, allows him to escape. Worst mistake he ever made. Uh, fortunately, the ties of the fraternity are often even stronger than national ties because what Daniel Dobbins does is he not only builds the American fleet on the other side of the sandbar, but he has a method of using wooden boxes, inflating them with air, and floating the ships over the sandbar. The Brits go down the lake to a place called Long Point, right opposite Erie, Pennsylvania, for a party one night. They get up the next morning, a little bit woozy, look out, the impossible has happened. The American fleet is on the lake. It's not hidden by the sandbar anymore, it's out there. In reaction to this, the, the British go and strip Fort Malden of all of its guns to supply their ships. Then on September the 10th, 1813, Oliver Hazard Perry takes the entire British fleet. All gone. No more protection on Lake Erie. Domino number two falls. As a result of this, the British are forced to retreat up the Thames River in, further into what is present-day Ontario, then Upper Canada. And what happens with that is the death of Tecumseh. Why is this important? Well, Tecumseh, also thought to be a Mason, a member of Thistle Lodge Number 34 in Amherstburg, Ontario, <laughs> leads a confederacy. The British have promised him the Upper Peninsula of Michigan as a sovereign native state. These are his allies. As you can see, in the north, they're all very active. They all want their freedom. And believe me, they don't trust the British. They'd be just as happy to kick them out too. But they definitely see the problem of Western expansion from the United States. William Henry Harrison has been a great problem for Tecumseh. As you all know, with the Battle of Tippecanoe, he defeated a Native American confederacy there. But they are not out for the count. They've merely been struck. They're not dead. They're not down. They're just trying to deal with their wounds. While that was happening, Tecumseh was down in this area talking to the five civilized tribes, as they call them, in the south. The Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, and Seminole. Now, think about this for a moment. Why on earth would he be doing that? Well, if we look at this, we see, okay, uh, we did have the Creek War in 1813-14. The Creeks are not happy. Certainly the Red Sticks faction wasn't. We have two Seminole Wars. Not one, but two. This area down here in further south is a tinderbox in terms of Native American relations with the United States. Tecumseh is very wise to come down here and seek their support. But they're standoffish because they just see what happened 
at Tippecanoe. If there are significant major victories, make no mistake about it, the five civilized tribes will join with Tecumseh. And if they do, then we have a real serious problem. On the frontier, what is the greatest fear? Well, the greatest fear is you're going to be attacked and overrun, killed, and other nasty things done by Native Americans. Tecumseh has a huge confederacy. That's his area of influence if he's successful. That includes the five civilized nations, okay? That's his promised sovereign state. Do you think he's going to stay there? Absolutely not. The United, and the British would have welcomed this because the United States is then hemmed in along the Atlantic. Western expansion is pretty much precluded or is much, much bloodier to achieve and much more expensive. It doesn't happen the way it did. Think about that for a moment. That's the way it could have been if the invasion of Virginia was successful. If Craney Island had gone the other way and the British were successful in invading, the five civilized tribes would have said, oh yeah, we're right there. You bet your brother Tecumseh, we're right there, we're with you, let's go. Without a doubt, that's exactly what would have happened. That's why the Battle of Craney Island is so important as the first domino. Then we have the Treaty of Ghent, not related to our Ghent, Ghent, Belgium. There is no sovereign Indian state. It's not even discussed. The British drop it completely. Not there. We go back to pretty much the pre-1812 boundaries, and people will say, well, who won? Neither side won, but the United States fought the most powerful nation on the face of the earth to a draw. Not a bad day's work. So, aftermath. What happens to the Masons that are involved? James Monroe becomes a very popular president. The two uh, terms that he serves are known as the era of good feelings. We have another future president, the hero of New Orleans, and by the way, Grand Master of Masons in, in uh, Tennessee, Andrew Jackson, who also comes out of that. Alexander McRae is considered for diplomatic missions by Monroe. In fact, he ends up living in London, England, working for Monroe. What happens here for uh, Robert Burroughs Taylor? They were so pleased with what he'd done at Craney Island that the regular forces offered him the, the uh, rank of Brigadier General in the regular forces, which he declined. 1819 to 1822, he is on the Board of Visitors for the University of Virginia along with James Monroe. He was a member of the 1829 Virginia Constitutional Convention. Ladies and gentlemen, where are the men like this now? He could not agree with his constituents. He would not vote the way they wanted to, so he stepped down to follow his conscience. Where are the politicians like that now? From 1830 to 1834, he was a judge here in Norfolk. He continued as a member of our lodge, unfortunately died in 1834. What happens for Virginia in the aftermath of this uh, three dominoes? Well, future president, William Henry Harrison, elected in 1840, hero of Tippecanoe, also famous for having chased Tecumseh out. Some people think he actually killed him. He did not. But nevertheless, his forces were responsible for Tecumseh's death. John Tyler, captain of a Virginia rifle company, which if you, by the way, folks, if you go to Fort Norfolk June 8th, for me, June 9th and 10th for op sale, you'll see a Virginia rifle regiment just the same as President John Tyler would have served in. 
So please think about that. Also on June 23rd, there is a commemoration of the Battle of Crane Island, to which you are all invited, of course. Then we have Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor is a very interesting man because he is a famous military person who becomes president, of course, but he starts his military career in the U.S. 7th Infantry. Why are they formed? They are formed in direct response to what we talked about earlier, the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. This is the second Virginia dynasty. You know, they'll talk about Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe as the Virginia dynasty. There's a second Virginia dynasty midway through the 19th century, all related to the War of 1812. All in some way or other related to those three dominoes I was talking to you about. One of the things that happens here in Virginia, of course, is Forts Monroe and Calhoun are built as a direct result of what went on. President Monroe is convinced we must never ever again allow a foreign power to control the Chesapeake. And as a result of the construction of Fort Monroe, they never do. I'm quite sure that when President James Monroe came to Norfolk to lay the cornerstone for the Customs House in 1819, October 1819, he probably stopped to check out the construction of Fort Monroe. Another indication, folks, that the Monroe Doctrine was already underway well before 1823, and it started here. We understand that we won or fought to a draw in the War of 1812. It was kind of serendipity. Lots of luck, lots of pluck, lots of valor. Not exactly the world's best military forces. We weren't well prepared. That was never like that again. We would never be caught flat-footed. No one would ever impress our sailors again. Military development took place, both the Army and the Navy. And we were ready to go anytime anyone wanted to take us on. In part, due to the failure of that Confederacy that we were talking about and the area of influence that would have been there, American Western expansion took place as it did. Think back to that oval that was on the map and how that wouldn't have happened if those dominoes hadn't fallen. The border with Canada started in 1818, once again, obviously something that took place because of the War of 1812, but also because of James Monroe's desire to say to the British, you may come this far and no further. And folks, that boundary pretty much stands today as it was drawn in 1818. Pretty much. A couple of changes here and there. I want to ask you some questions, though. What if? What if those three up there, those four up there, hadn't been concerned about defense? What if they just said, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's fine. We don't have money to spend on Fort Norfolk. We don't have money to do this. We can't train our, our militia. We can't do that. We would have been overrun, and it would be a very different area today. Now, I'm given to understand, as I stand here with my red coat, the last time a red coat came to Norfolk, it didn't go well. <laughs> if those men had not prepared as they did, I would be dressed in common fare, and the rest of you would probably be wearing red as well. What if the Grand Masters, uh, Jacobs and Bruff, did not care enough about the soldiers to set up that hospital? Our men would have been looked after. Proof positive that there was something more going on than just in the Atlantic Ocean and the Great Lakes. What if... Alexander McRae left town instead of planning for Richmond's defense. They were ready. Didn't happen, but they were ready. And what if his younger brother had never left Petersburg? There'd be no garrison at Fort Meigs. Life would have been incredibly different there. No question about it. And what if, this is the big question, what if the British invasion had been successful and they hadn't been turned away at Queenie Island? A very different world today, friends, a very different world indeed.